From Konigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hello everyone, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Your Ojai Magazines, your quarterly and monthly. In late 2019, our next guest had just published his new book, Living in a Real-Time World, about the rapid pace of change and how to use your existing capabilities to adapt. An expert in transformational leadership, Jim Selman didn't know that the pandemic would give him the ultimate proof of concept for his book, as familiar routines and assumptions about life and the nature of the workplace all disappeared under a mist of novel coronavirus. We thought it'd be instructive to reach out to this distinguished author, consultant, executive coach, and Ojai resident. Hey Jim, thanks for joining me. Hi, good afternoon. It's good to have you here. I've been meaning to have this conversation for a while because you're a person of uh, international renown in the business world and your world got turned upside down with this pandemic. So I'm really curious to hear how you made your how you made your pivot. I've been getting that, you know, question to a lot of people and getting all kinds of different answers and I'm curious what your experience was like. Well, I think the pivot is pretty much like a lot of people's, which is first of all uh, no travel. I went from uh, 200,000 miles I think I traveled in uh, before the pandemic and zero since. Uh, yeah. My first trip is coming up uh, next week. So it, uh, that was the biggest break in my, at my routines. Uh, in terms of the work itself, uh, it shifted obviously onto Zoom and Skype and WebEx and some of these different platforms. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting because I was surprised and, and pleasantly surprised how quickly people could respond through the digital medium. So uh, I think people pay more attention. I think there's less uh, chatter. There's less side conversation. There's no side conversations. Uh, so oh, well, I don't know. Some of the chat uh, features, you got to, well, like in my true. Rotary Club, that's like everybody's busting everybody's chops in, in those uh, chat rooms. It's well, kind of fun. That's true. I guess yeah. it's in more in the corporate world where they're a little more disciplined, I suppose. <laughs> but but the, point, the point is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a less uh, friendly, less uh, connected, less relationship physically. But I think from a work point of view, people are more focused, more uh, clear in terms of what people are asking or what they're offering. And in that sense, I think in a lot of ways more efficient. Uh, two of my biggest clients uh, really, really got hit hard, uh, primarily in the food business. All the fast food places were closed, so that they were suppliers to McDonald's and some of those kind of companies. Uh, and the result was they were really hit hard, but the recovery has been remarkable. Uh, yeah, there's a resiliency. They managed to shift away from fast food to more retail. Uh, they shifted to change channels. Uh, and because everybody, I think this was the most important thing I've observed, because everybody's in the same boat, it's, it's, the buyers and the sellers are actually on the same uh, reality. Yeah. And so they're able to connect each other in a way that doesn't produce a lot of uh, uh, annoyance or complaining or, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Kind yeah, of, kind ineffective, of. Uh, 
political gamesmanship and everybody trying to one-up each other. And a lot of that got leveled out all of a sudden. That's right. People got more serious. I think that's generally my experience as well. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, if you think about it, the abruptness and the universality of this kind of a, of a break uh, was remarkable. Nothing in my lifetime has even come close. Uh, I don't know that much has come close in my recollection of history, you know, in, in terms of the whole globe shutting down, the whole economy shutting down, the uh, whole industry shutting down. Uh, it's never happened. You can't draw any parallels to the 1918 Spanish flu because the world was not anywhere nearly as connected. And that was like rolling through, you know, it started in Kansas and got over to France from the troops. And, you know, it was, it was a completely different set of circumstances. I think it also, I think it also showed the, the uh, extraordinary value and power of the internet. I mean, if we had not had the internet and didn't have all this video capable, connecting capability, uh, God knows what this thing would have looked like. Yeah, we'd be at each other's throats, I'm sure. It'd be like some Hobbesian state. Well, and a lot more people would have died. Yeah. I'm almost certain of that. Uh, But anyway, the point is, it was a a break in our reality. You can make up all kinds of uh, coincidental interpretations, like maybe this is the wake-up call for a lot of other kinds of change. I don't know if you saw Greta Thunberg in the uh, speech she gave to Congress, but when she was saying... You know, we're not treating the climate like an emergency. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting statement. But then she was able to show, look at the pandemic, that was an emergency. And are we responding to the climate issues that way? And obviously yeah. not. Well, we have a book review in the coming issue that hasn't come out yet that Kit Stoltz wrote about um, this uh, Adam, Jack Adam Weber, who lives here in Ohio. And he says that it's all a framing issue that... It's climate crisis. That's like, it's not climate change. It's not global warming. It's climate crisis. Well, actually, Scientific American, I think uh, maybe three weeks ago or four weeks ago, uh, plus a open letter by 13,000 scientists uh, said, quit calling it a crisis. Start calling it an emergency. Oh, it's one step further. Even. It's one step further. And yeah. I think, and you know, when there's an emergency, you you need to think about how does how does one respond? Yeah, all hands on deck. All hands on deck, and and more importantly, stop other things. Yeah, this is a uh, take care of this at all costs. And whether you're talking personal change or whether you're talking uh, climate or whatever, the key is to be in action, not a reaction. Yeah. One of the problems in our culture, I think, is that we often wait until a problem gets to such proportions that we're reacting to. Yeah, to I'm afraid situation. that's human nature. Well, I, I don't really subscribe to human nature. I think it becomes a habit. Yeah, uh, yeah well. I it's a habit of thinking, and it's a habit of how we approach life and circumstances. And, it, and it, it, it's, also, it's, a, it's a, what technically you could call a paradigm problem. You know, it's, it's uh, not a psychological condition. It's uh, people relate to the world they observe. And if you're going to anticipate a problem, uh, you're not observing it. You have to project it. So when you anticipate, you're you're looking at the horizon of history. 
before it actually hits you in the face. Yeah, a little foresight. Yeah. So speaking of which, uh, interesting timing for your latest book, uh, Living in a Real-Time World, which came out like two, late 2019? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so not long before we went into the pandemic. And for people who don't know, the book deals with all, you know six uh, capabilities that we can uh, adopt or learn to you know, deal with whatever the crisis or obstacle or situation is. Um, so I feel like you're getting some proof of concept. Well, I couldn't agree. I was actually surprised myself. Because <laughs> the actual subtitle is Six Capabilities to Prepare for an Unimaginable Future. And the point is the pandemic was unimaginable six months yeah. before it hit. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's an interesting thing because it begins to wake people up to the realization that this transition we're in historically uh, is changing our relationship to everything. And in yeah. particular, it's changing our relationship to time. Uh, so, I, for example, people ask me, why did I give it that title? And the term real time, actually, the first time I ever encountered it was in the 60s in the computer business. Yeah. And uh, in those days, computers were just pure information processing machines. They took, you know, those data little, in, those data little, out. Those little cards, and they would process. Oh, yeah, punch cards. Pr- process this. information. And then they, the speed, the gap between the inputs and the outputs, the speeds got faster and faster and faster. And at some point, that gap between the, the past and the, or the inputs and the outputs disappeared for all yeah. practical purposes. And when that happened, computers transformed. They shifted from becoming informing machines to being performing machines. Now, what I'm observing as a function of, I guess you could call it accelerating change, is that we are, uh, the gap between our future and our past is getting smaller and smaller. Very few of my clients have much confidence in predictions, for example. Uh, And yet... Well, it's like the Arab proverb, he who predicts the future lies even when he tells the truth. That's right. Well, and and, you know, when you think about it, the, 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 the entire world, at least the entire business world and government world, in the organizational world, works on prediction. It works on the idea modeling and everything that you, else. You take a trend, you predict it, you know, project it in front of you, and you then make commitments and allocate resources. And so, the, all of the planning systems, all of the budgeting systems, the way we approach just about everything, is grounded and rooted in this notion that you can you can predict the future, and that carries with it the notion you can control. That if you have control and you have prediction, if you don't like the prediction, you can do something to change it. If you like the prediction, you can do something to make it happen. But it's a mindset. It's, it's, a, it's a way of understanding life that's no longer uh, reliable. That the, as that gap disappears, what I'm calling a real-time world, you're now like on the Starship Enterprise. You're going Boldly to, go where no man has gone before. Exactly, exactly. And when you're in that state, you have to start asking new questions. You have to start rethinking how you think. Well, it's kind of scary thinking. Of, I know that you're a very optimistic person. That's, you know, a force multiplier, as Colin Powell or somebody said. But the idea that the future's just rushing at us at this incomprehensible speed, it's intimidating as hell. Well, it is, it, but it, it really opens up 
a, a what I would say a profoundly important philosophical conversation uh, because because you know the whole notion of of thinking about the future we talk about it every day like there is a future there you know and that Christmas is waiting for us to arrive you yeah. know and it does it doesn't happen that way and the philosophers have made this stuff clear you know a long time ago but we don't live consistent with what we what our best thinking has given us. Yeah, well, we're looking at that, talking about James Joyce, uh, Ulysses. There's a quote early on in the book. I'm not, probably not going to get it exactly right, but speaks much to that. I think he says, stand in the present where the future rushes tumbling into the past. Yeah, that's very nice. That's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful quote. Because in a way, yeah, the, the, what is the future? The future is whatever we say it is today in our current moment. So in this conversation right now, you and I can talk about the future, and, and we can make commitments to the future, and we can speculate about the future. But what we're doing is having a conversation in the present. So there's no future in the future. I sometimes tell my clients, because tomorrow will be today again. Yeah. So this illusion or this myth that there's a there there, that we could figure it out, we, we have an inside track, is not legitimate. And that even the forecasted, the best forecasting and predictive models are still drawing on historical data to do that. And yeah. you can say the same thing about the past. The past exists, but only in the present conversation. And that's yeah. what historians do. You know, as they work on that kind of a, of a story, a narrative about the way it was and why it was that yeah. way. Or like uh, Napoleon called it, fictions of varying plausibility. Yeah. And Aristotle called it "life is a likely story." Pretty much, Life is likely. <laughs> like but the but the point is, we live in the present anyway, and that's pretty obvious to everybody. That's the only place we're alive is right now, right now, yeah. right now. But part of living right now, and maybe one of the things that makes human beings uh, particularly unique as animals, you know, is that we have this capacity in language to construct these interpretations, to reflect on our own process, to to observe ourselves observing, you know, to think yeah. about ourselves thinking. And it's at, at that level of perspective that we begin to see that we have a choice. So for example, as you remember from the book I, I wrote, I don't think we have much control or any control really in a real time world. Why? Because by the time you decide to do something, it's already happened. So you're mm. always following action in that regard. Yeah. On the other hand, this is not surprising because you could see the same thing in a coaching situation. You know, coaches aren't reacting to what's happening. They have to react to what's not happening. Okay. Oh, I like that. And so by listening for what's missing and beginning to observe differently, you begin to have possibilities and choices you might not otherwise have. So what I say to people is, look, you don't have a control over much of anything. But you always, always, always have a choice in how you relate to everything. So if you could begin to, to exercise skill in observing your relationship to something and work on your relationship with it, you have a lot of power and choice that you don't have if you're yeah. trying to control it. You know what that reminds me of is uh, improv, comedy. Yeah, very much so. Where instead of saying, you know, no, but, and then it shuts off all possibilities. It's always yes and, yeah, yeah. you know, and then you've got 
uh, can go any any different direction. It can go anywhere, but just that attitude of um, expansion. Well, and again, I think I've never been uh, formally trained in improv, but what little I know about it is this learning learning to let go of your thinking, to trust yeah. to trust your to trust the dance to give you the ideas yeah. and the thoughts and the moves. And well, that does sound a bit like your business model that you're just trying to. Uh, coach, well, can, just to go back specifically to the pandemic, because I'm just curious, what were like some of the early conversations that you had with some of your clients? And was there desperation and fear? And and what about yourself? Did you think, uh, wow, this is this everything's different now? What's it going to look like? I think there was desperation. I think there was fear. I think there's a huge amount of confusion. Uh, in fact, we're still still observing and experiencing all of this. Yeah. Uh, polarization around masks and vaccinations and and all of that that struggle is all partly a function of the fact that people are more committed to their point of view than they are to uh, yeah. coordination and collaboration to make something happen. Yeah. So so if I go back to the beginning, uh, and, and let me just take fear as an example. A lot of people were fear. I think everybody was anxious. You know, what will happen and it's normal I mean I can't I can't imagine not experiencing that on the other hand what I contributed is I would say look if you're afraid if you have that kind of mood then be afraid yeah. quit, try, quit trying to not be afraid if you're afraid or any other mood you know if you're frustrated don't fight frustration be frustrated but then remember you always have a relationship to your frustration and as long as you have that the frustration or the fear doesn't control you or dominate you. And most people, when they're afraid, they're so much in the fear, the fear is playing the tune. Yeah, that's right. The fear is like the tiger. Exactly, exactly. So if you, or I don't see, remember that metaphor exactly. Something about someday you're riding a tiger and some days the tiger's riding you or something. Well, that's the point, the way you're saying it, yeah. because it, I mean, it really is the fear has you or you have the fear. Yeah. And it's all about relationships. So. Yes, I'm afraid. Now the question is, what am I committed to and what am I going to do? Or if, if you simply express it and quit trying to hide it or be strong or look good or very other ways of, of denying or suppressing your moods, what happens is the more times than not, when you just communicate, I'm afraid, it goes away you know, or it passes yeah. through you. And so moods are... That's very, like meditation. They always say, don't try to shut off your <laughs> monkey brain. Just observe it and realize, oh my God, well, what is all this ridiculousness? And it goes away, it goes Absolutely. away. Absolutely, yeah, and, it, and that's meditation, but you could do the same thing with any mood or any situation. You, uh, I talk to people all the time that, you know, have been working their whole life on some issue, you know, being shy or being afraid or being uh, uh, anxious or, you know, not just those kinds of moods, but, you know, some, sometimes people are perpetually optimistic. You know, and, and they let their optimism blind them to some serious threats. Oh, yeah, like Candide. Yeah, In fact, so. I just had Malcolm McDowell talking about uh, Oh, Lucky Man, which is like the first big movie he made after A Clockwork Orange. Couldn't be more different movies. But, you know, his character goes through one misadventure after another with a big goofy smile pasted on his face. And, you know, it's... Uh, 
there's worse ways of being in the world, I guess. But I imagine you do have to caution some people. Uh, you know, I, I feel like you know they're either on the ledge, ready to jump off, or they're just floating off into nonsense. Well, and, and even whether you're talking pessimism or optimism, you're still talking to people who have a, a view that there is a future that is a certain way. Yeah. And then they're so so they're still projecting something onto onto the future that's not there. And then that's organized. So, for example, I tell people I am not uh, recommending positive thinking. I think it's a big trap. Why? Yeah. It's a trap because you have to have something negative first to think positive about. So every time you so think, your relationship with whatever it is. Yeah. You're, yeah. Every time you're thinking positively, you're reinforcing that underlying negative assumption that you're basically in some form of denial or or resistance or resistance to exactly. And then anything you resist, I say, you, you persist. You, yeah. get what you, you get what you resist. Now, another way of saying that is that when you're reacting to something, you're giving your power, you're giving your energy to that which you're reacting to. That's one of the reasons why, uh, and I'm in the change business, why most change fails. Yeah. You know, most attempts to change something fails. Why? Because the good guys that are for, for the... The different future progress. progress are fighting against the status quo. And the more they fight against the status quo, the more solid the status quo becomes. Yeah. So you have to say that the difference is you have to develop a, a style of creating what's not there or creating a new future rather than change the current reality. Uh, a vision, for example, is, is not a, a goal the way I work. Vision is the future as a possibility now. Yeah. Do you do uh, like C C level uh, executive uh, development? Yeah. Most of, my, most of my clients are C suite. C suite. Yeah. Most of my clients are C suite yeah. or CEOs, and uh, I generally work with the top teams, and then I have other people I work with that generally works with the middle management. Breakout groups. And, and well, we work with middle managers, and it's a combination. It's a combination of. Uh, engaging people in meaningful conversations to reveal how our thinking is producing more of what we don't want. Yeah. And, and if I were to put this as an axiom, and it's, it's tricky, but if you believe you need control to have what you want, then you become the source of what you don't want in order to maintain that, and that belief in control. A paradox. It, it, yeah, so it's, it's, it's you, are, you are creating a condition and a kind of uh, self-fulfilling reality when you're trying to change. Yeah. Because if you're trying to change reality, probably you're going to lose. Reality will probably win. On the it other usually hand, figures out a way to win. Yeah. Exactly. On the other hand, if you're trying to create something new, create a new reality, and that's by definition of leadership, if you're trying to create reality, not fix reality, then you're, you're, you're engaging in a different conversation. You're engaging in, in possibilities rather than predictions. And in, in, that, in that world, you have to be responsible for, for the way it is, but you don't have to let the way it is limit you in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. And that, what yeah. that finally does, and this goes back to Star Trek, you know, on Star Only go. And the thing is, the thing they use to navigate is all the stuff that breaks down and all the stuff that wasn't working. 
Yeah. So all the, well, a lot of the plot points are depend on that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because they they were always going wherever they were going, and whatever got in their way was what they had to use to correct their course or or get to yeah. get to someplace. And and if human beings could do that and begin to look at things like the pandemic or adversity as stepping stones to progress rather than limitations that we have to quote overcome yeah in order to prevail uh, i think people would be number one personally very more happy uh, but more more important i think they'd be a hundred times more effective yeah it is like a big reset button and we have an opportunity to do things differently i feel somewhat like we're getting stuck into the old traps and but i don't know i got a sense there's and i talk about this a lot that there's you know um all this pent-up enthusiasm and energy the you know the what did uh, Keynes call it the uh, animal spirits of the economy and artistry and everything starting to get back online because a lot of businesses i think there's a big productivity bump that we have not felt yet because people took this time to do some of those uh, blue sky projects or 30,000 foot view, you know, implementations, uh, new point of sale systems or a new building or, you know, refiguring how we're going to, you know, uh, do this business. Some of these, you know, take these old plans and dust them off and get get going on them. So I think it's going to be really, really interesting. Hopefully uh, people, you know, adopt more of the mindset that you're talking about, if not well, I think, I, think, I think for sure uh, it's going to be interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a guarantee. <laughs> and then, as you recall from the book or the, the introduction, as I make a very, very strong argument that nobody, like zero, self included, has the vaguest idea what the future is going to look like. Yeah. And, and we're talking about a time frame that our, our nervous system is not equipped to, to respond to. So, for example, I was talking to. Uh, I think he was the past president of the General Assembly of the United Nations a couple of years ago. And uh, somebody said, what's the most important issue on the planet? Not Boutros, Boutros, golly. No, he's a Vuk German. Uh, but, but he said, uh, he said uh, climate change. He's not even taking a breath. Climate. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, how, how long do you think we have before we have a kind of generic or general uh, systems breakdown? when the supply chains fail and the economies are essentially in upheaval. And hundreds of millions of refugees. Yeah, now I'd read somewhere that it was maybe 50 years. Uh, he mm -hmm. said, sir, he said, you're lucky if we have 10. Now, the, wow. very ne the very next day, the NASA came out with one of their scientific studies and projected maybe 20 years. Now, that was a couple of years ago. So somewhere right now in the, let's say, next couple of decades, at the outside and probably a lot less than that. We are going to yeah. have to confront uh, developing new ways of living together, yeah. new ways of prospering, new ways of living. And if, if nothing else has come out of all this, and I'm including climate and change and all this, it's that the traditional structures are not working. Yeah, no wonder Greta Thunberg is so angry. Look well, what mess we've left her. Well, and, and she's just an amazing young woman. She's matured a lot since her first uh, school strike. Her school strike and talking to the United Nations. But in her maturity, she's saying very clearly, look, this is not about what I like or what I don't like. 
I'd like to have a normal life. Yeah. But I don't think that's in the cards given what's at stake. So I'm, not, I'm telling people, look, don't panic, but be realistic. And when we're having a discussion, I read a quote the other day, uh, don't ask people if they believe in climate change. Ask them uh, if they understand it. Yeah. This is science, not Santa Claus. And yeah. You, Unfortunately, the world is full of magical thinking. Well, I think we're all prey to some of that. Well, I think degrees. I think that what you're dealing with is some kind of uh, generic resistance to confronting ourselves as individuals and as human beings. Yeah. So you think this is like a proxy for people's unwillingness to look in the mirror? I think it's a kind of mass denial. Uh, you know, if I ever yeah. look at it now again, I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying. That denial to me is what I call it is cognitive blindness. Okay, yeah. all it means is that, that we as human beings live in a world, uh, live in a culture, and I've traveled the whole world and seen lots of different cultures. So what I'm saying, I believe to be universal. We live in a, in a a relationship to life, a relationship to circumstances, uh, a relationship with ourselves, a relationship with each other in our relationship with time that you could call self-referential. That is to say, we're, it's, it's that monkey mind you talked about, it's the self-talk. Yeah. It's living in a world in which we actually think our point of view is true. Yeah, solipsism. Yeah, you could look at it that way. But the, but the bottom line is, it's a, it's, a, it's a temporal historical phenomenon. People didn't always operate this way. There's nothing inherent in the human being that makes us that way. Yeah. What do, you, what do you, like, specifically, like, the glory that was Greece, or what What do you... Well, I mean, the, my own philosophical bias is towards something called ontology, or the study of being. Yeah. You know, the philosophy... What is the eschatology? Is ontology, and ontology begets phylogeny, I remember. <laughs> I can't remember Darwin. that. I think that... I but think eschatology that... is about the sources, right? The godhead, or... What I'm, not, I'm not a professional philosopher, so I don't think I even know. You're not? That. Oh, my God. This is a terrible I, misunderstanding. I don't know what that <laughs> tunnel is. I'm pretty philosophical, but I'm yeah. not a philosopher. But the, but the, point, the point here, though, is that uh, I don't know if you ever uh, heard of Michael Sandel. He's a mm -hmm. number one popular professor at Harvard, and he teaches a course called Justice. Oh. Oh, I think I've, and his like wildly popular YouTube videos, oh, right? Outrageous. He's, he's a genius. But, yeah. Uh, but and he's a fairly young guy, right? Like in his very late 30s or. More importantly, he uses the Socratic method. He's very uh, much engaging students in, in, in a dialogue yeah. like Socrates. And, but here's my favorite line. At the end of his uh, uh, lectures, he says, many of these questions will never be answered definitively. But we live the answers every day, and when people mm. when people poo-poo philosophy, I keep reminding them that you know we're living the philosophy whether you're whether you like it or not. Yeah, you know, it's it, not like we have a choice. It's just the fundamental understandings of our existence. Exactly, exactly, and and that doesn't just, really matter if you believe it or not. It's just it's there. Well, know. and it, it doesn't make it true. It still lives as a, as a work in progress. You know, philosophy is like a 2,000-year-old discourse on, on the nature yeah. of who we well, are. Well, remember uh, so what, the, what happened to Socrates, though. Well, and look what could happen to us. Yeah, <laughs> so, what is so, happening to us. Yeah, yeah, maybe there's some interesting parallels. We're 
they, they gave him hemlock. We're getting uh, uh, ca CO2. carbon CO2. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's interesting, though, because I think I, I just finished a book uh, called uh, Ministry for the Future mm -hmm. by Kim Stanley Robinson. And it's the first, uh, first serious fiction I've read, read uh, on the subject of climate. And it's uh, really engaging. I mean, it's got that sounds it, good. I'll put got, that up in the notes. It got my heart beating pretty well, uh, because he's 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 talking. He's a futurist. He's a science fiction writer in some ways, but he's writing in a say a 20, 20 year horizon from now about so like 20, life. 20, what, what does life look like in twenty forty, or what does life really look like in twenty thirty? And, and he's showing goods and bads, but, but it's a revealing of the trajectory we're on, you know. And, and so you think he's really got it kind of thought out? You can. I think the guy should get a Nobel Prize for this piece. I mean, it is it is a remarkable uh, text that yeah. is 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 very skillfully written. I'm going to look that up. I don't read enough fiction, unfortunately. Yeah. I do read some, but. Well, this particular book, I was I was surprised. A friend of mine recommended it, and I was delighted they did. And there's a there's a million books you can read. And the point here is, even if you don't want to believe it, and even if you don't believe it, doesn't change the fact that most of the serious thinkers on this topic do. And and if nothing else, you need to respect that. So rather than saying you know. Uh, People that believe in climate change are denying the economy, or they're killing jobs. You know, are, yeah. diverting the diverting the discourse from a well-grounded interpretation of what we're dealing with to a sort of speculative, invented idea of what yeah. it might be. Well, it's interesting how some of the anti-climate science thinking has evolved to where. It's become so undeniable that temperatures are rising that now the attitude is, oh well, what are we going to do about it? Uh, can't you know? We're it's a, a, a haplessness or helplessness, you know. Oh well, now it's too far. We can't can't really move the needle any. You know, well, when guys like Bill Gates uh, in his new book, Devast uh, avoiding the climate devastation, uh, uh, how to how to avoid a climate disaster. Uh, when a person of that uh, gravity gravity, and with that kind of reputation and so forth, when he does the research and gives you the information in the book to say, well, he's wrong. You know, you got, you got to say on what basis would you even think that? Yeah. Well, what do you, and what, what uh, is your truth and how do you defend it? What's your, you know, like I see this anti-elitism and arguing from you know against authority on on every issue except their select authorities, whoever that happens to be, and uh, they don't seem to you know just this this reflexive opposition, but well, without having a, a you know it's one thing if you've got a better program and you're willing to go out there and make your case and persuade people, but just to to be the critic on the sideline, I think, is is irresponsible and reckless. Well, I think so, too. And, and I also think that, that, that there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people that are behaving that way or that are operating that way. And I think it's in part, again, a function of blindness and cognitive, uh, the, the, the interpretation they're living in. 
I don't think they're bad people. I, th I think that yeah. they are trapped in a particular relationship with and view of the world in which they cannot consider the possibility of a different view. Yeah, so, or so, like, uh, what was it, Cromwell, when he dismissed the rump parliament, he said, think it serves in the bowels of Christ that thou may be wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, <laughs> exactly right. He's a complicated character, but that's uh, one thing I... Well, and I think leaders throughout history have had to confront the question of how do we mobilize large populations of people to shift their view of the world in a way that could serve the common good in the, in the future. So Gandhi is probably one of the more popular examples of somebody that actually showed uh, there was an alternative to revolution, you know, or a different kind of revolution. Yeah, now, I, I work in what I would distinguish as the field of transformation. And I, I landed here in the early 70s because I... Yeah, Jim, I, I've known you a while, but I don't know where you grew up or how you got in the game. Like, what's, tell, what's your origin story? I want to hear it. Well, the short, the short story is I grew up in the military. Uh, oh, you were a military brat. I, I got lucky and ended up being a liberal arts graduate in a computer training program. So, okay, where, where were you born? Uh, Oklahoma City. Yeah, oh, but nice. I traveled widely. And, but again, I, I, uh, RCA Computers was doing a, an experiment. They took a bunch of engineers and computer scientists and a bunch of liberal arts people and threw them into a six-week uh, computer uh, programming course and systems design course to see if there was a difference. And the liberal arts people won. Uh, and we won because we didn't understand the technology particularly, but we understood logic and we were not constrained by a machine model of life. Yeah. And, and so consequently, but the point, that was not the point. The point was I ended up uh, very, very young as a computer guy. And then I didn't like the programming side, so I got into computer sales. And I didn't yeah. like that after a while, so I ended up as a management consultant where I had to more or less deliver what I was selling. So, so the, yeah, the, the, and get those systems integrated. And yeah, and my career was really founded on this management consultant. It's a big firm, and I was a partner uh, in, in the early 70s. And I became obsessed with a question. And the question was, why is it so difficult to implement anything? Okay, because you could do great studies, you could do great analysis, you could come up with brilliant models, uh, you could, didn't have funding issues in those days, uh, and they were smart people, and everybody could agree. And still, you'd go back. Uh, Nothing. And, and, people and, go right back and into people their... People would be more or less where they were two years earlier. Yeah. That was before the word organizational culture ever came into existence. That was when we hmm. thought that the reason you couldn't make change was because of human nature, and because there was a natural resistance to change. And that was the yeah. belief system. Well, so. I remember uh, I was in the military. I was six years in the Air Force. And um, last tour was at headquarters, 3rd Air Force. And that was the days of Edward Deming. was mm -hmm. like that total quality management. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I ever heard like organizational culture and, yeah. and stuff. And they were, they were keen on it. And the military worked, uh, you know, transformationally because it's all hierarchical. You just do what you're told, you know, you take your orders. Uh, civilian world, it's a little more slippery. That's it is true. It's also true, though. Even in the military, the the great generals 
were the ones that didn't follow the rules. They yeah. cre created the strategies on the field. That's and, right, and, yeah. And we only, or like, we uh, only the, read about like the great philosopher Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> That's right. Well, in this case, I think we only read the history of the winners. But, but, the, but, the, but in my own story, what happened was I, uh, I, I couldn't resolve the, the question. And I was part of a network of, I don't know, probably a dozen people that began to think about the concept of organizational culture. And I ultimately delivered the third project for Lockheed because culture is is one of those things that people speak about like it's a thing. Okay, yeah. they, they talk about culture in the same context that they talk about tables and chairs. Well, you can't yeah. do that because of the culture. And yeah. what I what I show people is that the culture is not not real. It's a context. Yeah, it's or like uh, Sapiens. Did you read that? I did. Yeah. And, I, and how many uh, how many shared fictions on which everything is built like you know from hunter-gatherers i love to i love that all of those books i read you know homo deus and 20 rules for the 21st century and i think that guy goes right back to those essential questions that's what makes him so interesting wonderful i i love this guy uh because what 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 we did is we we began to show that culture is a conversation that's one of my criteria is if you're going to talk about something it needs to be observable if it's going to be actionable in other words if it's not observable it's not actionable yeah so if we're going to talk about trust or we're going to talk about uh, morale or we're going to talk about culture or we're going to talk about paradigms you have to ask yourself the question what are you observing that you're giving that label to now, in my work, I label most everything as a conversation. So if I go into a company and I ask people, you know, tell me about the way it is around here, within a couple hours I can tell you more about that culture than probably most of the people there. Because if you, if you listen to people deeply and, and they articulate the way it is around here, they begin yeah. to show you the culture. So, for example, if you go to Argentina, or Scotland for that matter, you, you can usually start with a cab driver yeah. and ask him, tell me about Scotland or tell me about Argentina, and they will start to give you a story. And after you do it three or four times, you find out it's the same story. Yeah. So talk to 20 cab drivers, you start to hear the same story, it begins to be the a clue. commonalities. Yeah, and then you talk to people in coffee shops and restaurants, and, and it's, it doesn't take very long before it's pretty clear what the story is. Yeah. So before you even meet with the C-suite, you've got some idea of what you're dealing with in a way that maybe they don't because they're too in the thick of it. Well, I mean, I have, I have enormous uh, love and compassion for, for human beings. I mean, I, that's, my, that's why I'm doing what I do. Uh, I'm not interested in the models per se. I'm interested in, in what, are, what are we doing as human beings? What are our concerns? How, how effectively are we able to live together? How can we speak and listen in conversations in a yeah. way that acknowledges and grants agency to each other and at the same time doesn't dominate or attempt to dominate each other with our point of view? So uh, when I go into a corporation, I already have a lot of commitments about human beings that I've developed over my life uh, that mostly are fairly well-grounded very well grounded, 
in terms of the philosophical and scientific elements, because sometimes I have to work with brain science and other uh, explanations for behavior and various things that people yeah. do. I explicitly do not use psychology because I don't want to confuse psychology with philosophy. I'm, yeah. sa I'm saying that psychology is one theory for human beings. I think it's, it's problematic because most psychologists, not all, but most psychologists have an underlying assumption in the history of psychology as this assumption that the human being is an object. And so you need a yeah, science, like you need a science, you yeah. need a science to explain how the object works. But if you don't think of that is the only way to look at a human being, that, that, that our consciousness is not a, an object, or that our emotions are not necessarily the same as uh, this table or that chair. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that there's another dynamic going on here that's accessible, and, and you can rigorously deal with it, but you have to think about it. It's a phenomenon of language. So when I talk to people, I say, look, a paradigm is a linguistic phenomenon. It's not a model in your brain. Right? Yeah. It, you know, and, Although there are some discoveries about architecture of the brain that, that there are you know some some structures not not to contradict you i'm just saying that no, no, it's no. like we're learning stuff oh, all the time there's a lot of fascinating there's a lot of fmri studies my, cur my current partner is a guy named srini Pillay. uh he's a, a neuroscientist and a, a psychiatrist and a brain scientist from harvard and uh, quite well renowned well written writes a lot of stuff and he and i i don't know i've been in a kind of bromance for the last couple of years. Uh, we met Are you bromosexuals? <laughs> no, we're just buddies. <laughs> Bro but but we, we, we met at the, at the meeting of the Transformational Leadership Council, and we began to talk about what if you could marry the, the best thinking from brain science with the best thinking from, from philosophy. Yeah, that sounds like what you were just describing your origin story with. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that's, so, so we're working in a kind of inquiry. Uh, but one of the things that we've, we've come to is the question is, does everything happen in the brain? Or does, are there some phenomena that don't happen in the brain? So yeah. uh, now this is a very controversial topic among brain well, scientists. Well, there's, uh, you know, quantum packets and distance or action at a distance and all these things that we're probably never going to be able to wrap our minds around. Could be, I, I, but I, I think it's still a work in progress. I, I, I do believe this, and, and it's come with him. He's, he's come around to my way of thinking here. Uh, let's say, for example, a relationship. And as I told you earlier, my whole work is really based on relationship. Uh, not just relationship between people, but relationship with life, relationship with everything. So if, if I say, talking about yours and my relationship, there's a a model in your brain of our relationship. There's a model in my brain of our relationship. And then there's the relationship, which is in neither of our brains. So it lives in... in you don't think it's some meld of both, that it is, no. that it that it operates discreetly? No, I think it's... Well, I mean, there's lots of philosophy on this too, but I think that it exists as a phenomenon. I don't think it exists as a, as a model or a program in our yeah. heads other but you have one and i have one so we have we have three things going on here there's your our relationship in your brain our relationship in my brain yeah. and then there's our relationship our relationship lives as you could call it the 
the context for our being together. You could call it a, a space in which we're gathered. You could say it's a it's a, a declared possibility in language. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways we could like we could articulate it, but phenomenologically, there's no evidence that it, that it exists anywhere. Yeah, just like culture doesn't, context doesn't, be, or money or, doesn't really either. That's right. There's a lot of things that are not tangible and that are not even factual that still impact our everyday life. Yeah. Now, electricity, for example, nobody sees, nobody knows, and yet the world works on it. Yeah. Um, now, I'm saying that ideas are much the same. We're, we started talking about uh, pandemics. Uh, uh, Salk, uh, Jonas Salk, the guy who invented the polio yeah, vaccine. Yeah, he's my hero because he declared no intellectual property. He wanted to get it out into the well, world. And he's famous for a quotation that I use quite frequently. He said, he said never underestimate the power of an idea to transform reality. Yeah. Uh, and, and that that's what we're dealing with right now in the world, I think, is that we have a, a, uh, a lot of political entrepreneurs that are trying to... Otherwise known as grifters. <laughs> try, <laughs> trying, to, trying to mobilize people into a certain belief system. And uh, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. But I also think that there's a lot of people that are beginning to wake up. And I don't mean woke. I mean, they're beginning to awaken to the fact that human beings are always creating their reality in language. That yeah. Well, is that semiotics? Is that with the study of Well, in my world, language it's ontology, but ontology. the ontology of language. It was, our, it was Heidegger wrote a famous book called Being in Time. Yes. And uh, the, the bottom line is that language is the house of being. So if you say we are human beings, the human part's pretty clear. That's the bodies in our objective presence. The being part of human being is not so clear. Yeah, it's so a verb. It's a verb, and it's also uh, uh, a domain of existence, an existential uh, space in which life occurs. Yeah. So life appears for us in the context of whoever or whatever way of being we have. What I'm offering and what I'm claiming is that being is also a domain of action. Okay. So when I go to South America, for example, they have two verbs for being. One, one verb is ser, and one verb is a star. Ser means can never change. A star means changeable. So mm. then I would say, how do you say he is ignorant? Or he is uh, anything like that. They will use ser. Then I'll say, how do you say the government is corrupt? They will use ser. Okay, so what that says is the, is the historical context in which they relate to government or the way they relate to human beings is that we're fundamentally unchangeable unless you have some kind of an exceptional story or explanation. Yeah. Even in the face of evidence that we change. But So I'm not saying individuals can't understand examples that say obviously that's not necessarily true. But it's their, uh, uh, what do you call it, your factory settings. Yeah, your factory settings, and it's kind of the water we swim in. It's the, yeah. ocean, it's the ocean of interpretation that we call life that mostly is constituted by unexamined assumptions, beliefs, 
assessments, judgments. Uh, most of us are born into those stories. You know, they were yeah. here before you were here. And we buy them whole cloth like truth. And then yeah. we live it as if truth. And then we get uh, trapped into various uh, mechanisms and other forms of, uh, of ways of being that are counterproductive. And, yeah. and I mean, if you look at an alcoholic, an alcoholic is someone who actually believes they have control over something they don't control. But that's true yeah. of every other kind of alcoholic, you know, every other kind of is. Well, I think there's a lot of language in the recovery industry, and it almost kind of is an industry, that relates to all the problems. I, I'm not a addict, but I know a lot of them, and they all share that you know, the wisdom to know the difference. That's what you're fighting for all the time between what you can change between Sarah and a, a star. You're working to figure out which is which. Well, that's right. And also you're, you're waking up to the fact that maybe it's all a star or, yeah. you know, or maybe it's all Sarah, but one way or the other, it's an interpretation. Yeah. And what I'm trying to get people to see is look, there is no ultimate truth as far as I can tell. I, and I, de I deny any, or I reject anybody's claim to know the yeah. ultimate truth. Now, given that, human beings historically... And now, do you say, are you claiming there is no ultimate truth, or that it's beyond our ken? I'm saying if there is, it's unknowable to us. Yeah. It's Einstein saying you can't look inside the watch. Okay, yeah. so, so, so I'm saying for all practical purposes, there is no ultimate truth. There is, we live though in interpretive reality. We live in a relationship to life through whatever historical interpretations we inhabit. Okay, and we mostly live those as if they're true. Uh, one of my main uh, contributions when I'm teaching, for example, is to challenge people to look at, at the phenomenon of an assessment. Yeah. Okay, we all live with lots of assessments. You couldn't have life without it, but most everybody debates and argues whether their assessments are true or false. Yeah. And I'm trying to say, look, I can prove to you that uh, no assessment is ever true or false. You know, I'll give $10,000 to anyone that can give me a single example. Okay? And the, you can't. Now, the assessments are not the same as assertions. But that's, yeah. just, that's just the structure and understanding of language. That your point of view is legitimate, it's valid, but it's not true, and it's not false. Now, when you and I are coordinating or trying to do something together, we need to understand how each of us see it. So if, I, if you and I have a different, a different judgment, you know, it costs too much. No, no we yeah. can afford it. Or we no. can't, uh, we got to push back to delivery. Or Yeah, or, or the, that's fake news. Or yeah. That's not fake news. You know, the, the point is if we have a difference of assessments, then we have to develop new practices or allowing our differences to coexist and then develop practices for resolution or action. So yeah. if you say it's fake and I say it's not fake, I don't want to keep arguing that back and forth because that's never going to go anywhere. What I do want to know is, can you ground your assessment that it's fake? Yeah. Or can I ground my assessment that it's not fake? And then when we develop the practices in grounding by that, I mean, show me how you got to that conclusion. Don't tell me the conclusion and then defend it like it's the truth. 
show me how you got to that conclusion. Yeah. And if I got and I show you, we both are going to be wiser for the, for seeing it. In yeah. many cases, in most cases, frankly, in the process of this kind of rigor, we'll end up with a third point of view that neither one of us had, and we can we can align and then we're coordinating again. On the other hand, yeah. if we can't do that, then we're going to just debate and argue and get annoyed and. And that's the kind of state and then the goodness knows in. where that ends up. Yeah, well, we just have to look at the newspaper. Well, the uh, to go back to Socrates for a moment, it just flashed on me that you know they he was poking and prodding and you know corrupting the youth, and they're getting nosy and asking too many questions and assumptions, so they put him to death. And then those accusers, the one that were you know within like less than two years the people of Athens turned on those people because they realized that they missed this guy, that he was a charming character, that he was a vital part of the civic life. So those like 10 or 12 of the ones that were most keen to have him executed were banished and they put up a statue in the Agora of Socrates. Yes, it's... Uh... Hopefully that's a good object lesson for, for us as a people. Well, I, I hope so too. But I, I, you know, I think that right now, to get back to the present time, is that we are in a, a critical juncture of history. We are, we're, we're living history in a way that we can actually be aware that we're living history. Uh, history historically has taken, you know, happens over, you know, long periods of time. Uh, you know, change that used to happen over a century or a decade, now it yeah. can happen in a much more compressed short time frame. Yeah. So, so um, it's it, that's why I say it's interesting. I, I don't, I, I don't, I can't even imagine so much going on for most people and what's going on right now today. Yeah, I think that a lot of that, that angst and anxiety and that intellectual nausea that people are having is just the pace of change. Well, and it's so, so. And people are, people are are suspicious and uncomfortable with ideas that don't match what they already understand. And, yeah. And and like one of the other things I do in a workshop, for example, is after about thirty minutes, I'll say, "How many of you notice you have a little voice in the back of your head?" Everybody. So now, how many of you have heard that voice say at least once, "I agree"? Hmm. And I'll get half the room. Most of everybody will have said, I've heard that voice say, I agree, at least once. And how many of you have heard the little voice say, I disagree? So I said, okay, so here we are in a, in a learning moment, and you're listening, and I'm speaking, and your little voice is saying, I agree, I disagree, I agree, I disagree, I agree, disagree, constantly. Yeah. Then I say, okay, well now, what do you do? What action happens when your little voice says, I agree? Well, basically, you say, yep, I put that into the bag with the stuff I already believe. You confirmed what I already think. Yeah. Or I said, good. Now, what do you do when, when the little voice says, I disagree? Well, I throw it away. Or maybe if I'm really astute and a good thinker, maybe I put it on the shelf for a later consideration. Yeah. But mostly, I reject it. Yeah. So then I say, isn't that interesting? So here we are to learn something, and you're listening to me through a filter of agree-disagree constantly. And you don't learn anything either way. So what the conclusion I'm proposing is that it doesn't make a difference at all in your life 
what you agree or disagree with. Zero. Hmm. Okay, and yet you're living your life based on this agree-disagree mechanism, as if that's the that's the, that's your joystick, that's your navigation basis. Yeah. You're navigating through life based upon what you already came in with. So I said, if that's the case, you're going to, by definition, get more of the same. Yeah. And if that, if that happens, then I hope that what you agree with turns out. Yeah. <laughs> but but reality doesn't care what you think. Yeah. It sure doesn't, as we learned. Yeah. So as anyway, we are learning, we are learning, and that's the whole point: is that in a real-time world, learning is a critical life skill, and I don't mean just learning, but learning to learn. Yeah. And 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 the ability to throw away what you've learned as easily as you learn. Yeah. Learned it that's when very it no, difficult. When it no longer works, yeah. when it no longer holds up. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. I love John Maynard Keynes because he's just such a wit. He's funny. People don't understand that. But at the Bretton Woods Conference after uh, World War II, when they were setting up the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and I mean, he was like the architect of so much of this stuff. I mean, really, uh, you know, got the world back on its feet, probably more than any other single person, maybe George Marshall. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, uh, they were had a press conference there in this lodge in New Hampshire, and he was given some statement about their movement or program. And this reporter jumps up and says, ha ha, you've changed your mind on that issue. You're flip-flopping. And he said, well, sir, I have new information. And sir, what do you do with new information? Yeah. I just, well, that's, I that's love exactly that. the point. It's exactly the point. The other point that I make in this uh, in my book about living in a real-time world is that I believe that everybody already possesses these capabilities. I think just like all of us have an ability to read, doesn't mean we're all literate. Yeah. Uh, but all of us have an ability to accept, you know, to accept things as they are without resisting. You know, we all have the capability of uh, changing our way of being. Yeah. The, are you? This is the six capabilities. Yeah. And accepting things is obviously the gateway for all the rest. You can't you can't do anything new while you're resisting what is there. Yeah. You you can't you can't play a new game until you quit playing the game you're playing. Yeah. You know, and and so you have to have an ability to you could say surrender, but I mean that in a positive sense. I don't mean yeah. that as succumbing. I mean saying I I I declare that there's no possibility here, and I'm not yeah. going to continue down this track because it's see any possibility yeah and when you do that then you have the next step is okay good well if there's no possibility what are you going to do well i have to create a possibility where none exists okay. is that the second capability well, no no that's all the first oh the second one has to do with being it has to do with uh, i have a choice in how i'm going to relate to yeah. everything in life I, my my way of being in the world is a choice it's not a psychological imperative you know, and, and again how I relate is closely connected to what I'm committed to what I'm concerned about and I'm starting I start to trust my concerns and my commitments and not and like I ask people sometimes uh, do you do your commitments create your reality or does your reality determine what you commit to okay what should it be well it's, I can see a Arguments on both sides of that. Well, only if you believe in objective reality. 
Yeah. If you have a point of view that it's not possible, or that, let's forget that one. If you have a point of view that it's going to be too difficult, yeah. that, and you therefore don't make a commitment, you'll never find out. Yeah. It goes back to improv comedy. Kind of. Yes, it, and. Yeah, yes, and. It goes, it goes back to the fact that possibilities, this is a hard idea for a lot of people, possibilities, by definition, do not exist in reality. Yeah, because by definition, yeah, because, if, because if, as it'd be a reality, it would be a... Yeah, if it existed in yeah. reality, it would be an example. Yeah. And then it's a matter of choice to do it or not do it. But if you're going to invent something, whether it's heavier than air flight or radiation or tech, new technology or the internet or a new app or anything, you have to, you can't let the existing uh, reality encumber you. George Bernard Shaw once said, reasonable people adapt themselves to the circumstances. Unreasonable people adapt the circumstances to themselves. Yeah. Progress depends upon unreasonable people. It was like that documentary about Ralph Nader, an unreasonable man. Yeah. Well, and I'd say to people, you know, I'm talking to CEOs and everybody else, I'm saying, look, if you aren't prepared to be unreasonable, you need to leave the room because there's no point. Yeah, you know, everything is just perfect the way it is. Leadership is an inherently unreasonable practice. Yeah. And if you're going to challenge conventional reality and create something new, then you have to be willing to face the fact that most people are going to say you're crazy or you're nuts yeah. or it's not possible or they're going to get nasty or they're going to get upset because you are challenging what they believe. Now, the trick is, this is a trick, not a trick, it's a practice. I, I almost never tell people what they believe is wrong. You know, what I say is, you need to be able to see your own beliefs and have a relationship with your own beliefs in order to, to choose the beliefs you have. Secondly, yeah. you also need to, to be rigorous, like rigorously honest, in terms of are your beliefs delivering the life that you want? Yeah. And if, and if all you end up with is trapped in a kind of never-ending excuse or a never-ending explanation, or why life isn't the way you want it to be, yeah. then you've become a spectator. Or worse, a victim. Well, that's right, a victim, spectator. Yeah. And, and what you're doing is you're now having conversations about change yeah. and not distinguishing the difference between conversations about change and conversations that actually change something. Yeah. Okay, so because if you, if they're, if that's, if you think it's all a conversation, which I do, then you have to say, do, do the conversations I have in every area produce the outcomes that I want to produce? And that's skill. So I'm saying to people, I'm teaching conversational competencies. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like teaching, that. I'm teaching. I'm teaching people the difference between a committed conversation and a conversation in the bar about everybody's point of view. Yeah. It's, uh, well, what, uh, what's, what are you working on now? You got this book, which I recommend. You have, you're getting back, starting to get back on the road. Are you one of those guys that's always schlepping golf clubs through the airports? No, no, no. No? I, I rent them wherever I go. <laughs> okay, because I know you play a lot of golf. Now, how did you end up in Ojai? Was golf part of the oh, decision-making I, process? I, ending up in Ojai is probably the, one of the largest miracles of my life.
Yeah. I was living in Vancouver, BC, and wanting to get, uh, my wife wanted to get closer to the grandkids who lived in LA. Yeah. And we didn't want to be so close. We're going to be permanent babysitters. Yeah, uh, it's so, a it's a dance. Uh. And I and I didn't want to come to Southern California. I wanted to go to Northern California because I lived there for a number of years. And uh, finally, we said we resolved. Okay, Southern California. And uh, a friend had mentioned Ojai. And for, for our for us, it was kind of a dart on the on the map. You really didn't have any. Any uh, knowledge of Ojai or zero just... zero knowledge. The one person I knew I from L.A. I asked her something about Ojai, and she said she didn't know anything about it either. But one of her friends said it was boring, and they rolled up the sidewalks at six o'clock. Yeah, and it was a, it was a, a big yawn. I love it. So, Keep Ojai lame. <laughs> so so I uh, I had no expectations. My wife got intrigued. She came and rented a house here for a couple of weeks, uh, or maybe a couple of months. Anyway, I was traveling a lot, and so I stopped on a long weekend, and uh, she was going to show me around. And she knows me pretty well, so the first thing she did is have us stay at the Ojai Valley Inn. Oh yeah. So that was a that was a big plus. Yeah. And then uh, we drove around the golf course on a, a golf cart. That was a big plus. And then we started looking around, and it was pretty great. And uh, we uh, uh, found a house out on Grand that there was already an offer on. But we made another offer ourselves anyway yeah. because the realtor thought it would fall through. It didn't, and we lost the deal. So I had uh, an afternoon left on this weekend trip, and we ended up seeing this property we ended up buying, uh, which was pretty uh, pretty run down at the time. Yeah, uh, but what a great location. It, it turned out we bought it because of the location and because of the property, and uh, spent a year remodeling and fixing it up, and Mark Whitman was a genius support for us yeah and uh you've seen the place it's pretty special yeah it is and, yeah uh, and it's a uh, it, i mean i cannot tell you how much what a what a what a civic booster i am in terms yeah. of uh, both the place the living the the environment the size i mean it's just it's a miracle. the culture if you will the, the culture yeah everything <laughs> everything is great here and, it, and it's not great like goody goody it's 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 great as in it is, it is itself. You know, I find that uh, one of the biggest problems we have sometimes is comparing things. You know, whether it's comparing relationships or comparing people or comparing, yeah. comparing our own experiences. Whenever I, whenever I come to Ojai, I'm, I'm in a place that almost automatically evokes presence. It almost automatically has me be here now. You know, yeah, and, and I don't spend much time. The thinking. orange blossoms or the it's, sun warm sage, and yeah. it's the most fragrant place I've ever it's lived. It's fragrant. It's gorgeous. I mean, I'm looking at the topas every morning when I wake up. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, you know, I I usually describe it as a village of eight thousand people, twenty five fabulous restaurants, two golf courses. You know, world class uh, hotel resort and the hiking uh, trails, spa, and hiking trails. The backcountry, I think, is an underappreciated some the, asset. Some of the finest uh, preparatory schools and, and K through 12 schools in the country. Yeah. You know that uh, it's a uh, diverse in terms of backgrounds of people. You know, and the fact the fact I it, it's a you know in my in my connection with the civic with the city council and with civic concerns. I guess I'm, I'm always wishing, and this is the one project within Ojai that I think is uh, still in progress, 
yeah. which is trying to somehow bring the, the disparate perspectives on economy, growth, and civic concerns yeah. so that we could actually begin to work together as a community. To make that future, whatever to make the future. shared understandings on which it's built. Exactly. And, and I think that somehow there's still a lot of uh, traditional uh, debating going on rather than dialogue. And yeah, I was talking to uh, the mayor the other day about you know to try to uh, build a council that is rigorously committed to dialogue and learning from each other and learning about whatever yeah. the issue is. But I don't know if you've ever been to a, you know one of the when there's a hot button issue on city oh, council sure. meetings. Oh man, people get so worked up and so angry. No, that's true. Unfortunately, a lot of those people aren't around when it's time to roll up their sleeves and get busy. Well, I mean, that's another issue, but I, I do think that I have been to a couple of those meetings, and I think the problem is when you have a hot-button issue where people have strong feelings about things, mm -hmm. that's when they should be more committed to dialogue rather yeah. than dig in and defend and then debate. And the confirmation bias and, that and, goes with it. Exactly, and then when, you, when, you're, when, you're, when you're trying to make a decision and you're your decision is going to be by overpowering the opposite view. Yeah, shouting them down. That even if you win, you don't win because you basically haven't done anything about the resistance. Yeah. So, and this is what's going back to where my career started. This is why implementing change generally fails because people don't align and commit. So in democracy, in theory at least, we should say, when we make the decision, we're all aligned with that decision, whether we agree with it or not. Okay? Yeah. And that if that's not the case, then you end up with a, a minority view that's opposing it even after the decision was made. And even yeah. if it's only in the form of just endless complaining, you know, or <laughs> undermining or uh, grousing, it, 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 it affects the mood of the community. It, it divides families, yeah. it divides uh, in, interests, and, and, it, and it basically un, it undercuts our, our common future. So, yeah. so, so what I'm hoping for is that perhaps climate, but there may be other issues, maybe fire, uh, maybe water, that are... All interrelated. That are all, that are all, they are all interrelated, but they're also transcendent enough and, and universal enough that people can agree something needs to be done that we need to get together and figure this out yeah, yeah and, that, and that we're not gonna we're not gonna we, we can we can burn up alive while we debate yeah <laughs> or we can get clear that there's an issue and that we need to make some decisions get somewhat rigorous in terms of our of our dialogue so that when yeah. we do come to a to a to a strategy and hopefully the uh, the, the civic planning process could ultimately lead it, lead here. Uh, you you end up with a united community um, yeah. that's both diverse on one level, but at the same time is aligned in its its uh, commitment to the long range vision or, yeah. or plan for the city. Well, I'd love to see that. Uh, what was it? Rebecca Solnit wrote a book about. Goodness, I'm not going to remember. It was a long time ago. She talked about the earthquake in 1906 in San Francisco and this coming together of people in the midst of this great tragedy. And one of the 
witnesses, uh, narrator, and his uh, correspondence was talking about how he knew they were going to go back to grousing about all the old issues again and how much he loved being in that space. Even when he was surrounded by rubble and all this tragedy of people being together. And I felt that right there, you know, December 2017 in the Thomas fire, that people really just got snapped right out of their whatever, like whatever we can do, we're going to roll up our sleeves. And, and it didn't last. It was great while it lasted, but it didn't last that long. Well, I think I use this uh, example when you're talking about uh, in, in most of my workshops, because I'll say all of us have had that experience, whether it was a New York brownout or the ice storm in Canada or the fire yeah. in Ohio or, uh, you know, the, the, most everybody's had that that crisis experience that brings out the absolute very best in us. Yes. You know, when all of our petty bullshit goes away. It, we know? just see it for what it is, and, and, trivial. And I always say, if, that, if you've had that experience, it's not a question of ability. You've demonstrated you've got the capacity for that. Why does it take a crisis to bring out the best in us? Now, in AA... Yeah, that's a great question. Now, in AA, for example, one of the beliefs is, is that you never wake up until you hit bottom. Yeah. But one of the variables is, where is the bottom? Yeah, or as they say, it's always darkest right before it turns completely black. Well, and the thing, though, is, is that if you think the bottom is some kind of objective destination, you yeah. don't appreciate the fact that, that the real choice is, where is the bottom? Now, a lot of people sober up from what's called a high bottom. They don't, they don't destroy their families and they don't lose their career and they don't, you know, you know yeah, they end wake up, up in, in, time. in the gutter. They just simply see that what they're doing is, is, is not working and that they don't, they're, whatever they've done to try to correct it isn't, isn't happening. And therefore they decide to minimally try another approach called sobriety. Now, no, almost no one can imagine sobriety on the drinking side of alcoholism. Yeah. You can understand it, you can say the word, but you can't it's experience it. It's an abstraction. It's, it's like a mother who hasn't had a child trying to imagine motherhood before the birth. Yeah. You can, you can read books, you can have a lot of information, you can know a lot, but until you have that child, you don't experience motherhood. And yeah. so the same thing is true with community uh, uh, solidarity. You know, until we, until we realize that this polarization or divisiveness or uh, uh, political positioning to be right, you know, at all costs, et cetera, et cetera. All of that noise and all of that energy and all of that acrimony and a lot of that negative mood is not giving us the future that either one of us want. And yeah. so, so on that basis, we need to invent uh, at least the possibility of what I'll call community solidarity in which we acknowledge that we are one community and that we're going to have one future regardless of our point of view. Yes, and whether we like it or not, it's coming. It's Whatever it's going to be is coming, exactly. So then the question is, are we open enough and willing enough to be vulnerable to expose our points of view in a way that says, I trust the community to decide? You know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm going to give my vote to the community so to speak. I'm going to vote, but I'm going to entrust my future to the community 
rather than necessarily hold on to my individualistic point of view. Yeah. I, I had a conversation yesterday, Brent, that was very interesting. Um, uh, I get a sense you have a lot of interesting conversations. I have a lot of interesting conversations, yeah. that's true. I think that's your, uh, your stock and trade. But it was, uh, I think I was reading I don't know, one, of the, one of the feeds, but I came, it came down to this. This country was founded and probably is the most vested country on earth in the idea of individuality. Okay, I mean, among, at least every in my travels, I don't know of any place that is so uh, rigorously holding on to the notion of the individual supremacy, yeah. the supremacy and sovereignty of the individual. It's, yeah. it's, as, it's as strong as anywhere I can imagine. Why is it that at the same time we have that, we have a country's culture that has evolved to a point of almost no personal responsibility. Okay, yeah. that the the amount of litigation, the amount of blaming, you know, the, the amount, amount of the, othering the, is the what scares of, me. The amount of victimhood. Yeah. You know, I mean, I say that it's anything you can't be responsible for, you are a victim of. And I think one of the things that's uh, missing in this whole discourse is that your average person, I don't think, appreciates or is responsible for how extraordinary a country we have and how special it is. And I don't mean uh, exceptionalism. I mean, I mean, in almost a, a sense of wonder, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what has emerged in we, we roughly refer to America. And, and rather than embracing that, celebrating that, and being responsible for it, the history has evolved into a kind of uh, life becoming an opinion poll. Yeah. You know, in a context of blame for whoever did what. Now, a lot of it has to do with, I think, a misunderstanding of the idea of responsibility. I think most <laughs> people think of responsibility as who's going to cause it, or who did it. Or who's going to do it? Yeah, who's going to make me do it? So the word responsibility and the word blame are very connected yeah. in most people's ordinary thinking. Now I say, and this again is going back to our earlier conversation, that responsibility has nothing to do with causality. Okay, that responsibility. I'm going to have to wrap my mind around that. that responsibility has to do with relationship to something. So any of us can be responsible for anything that we are committed to being responsible for. Yeah. And I mean it like ownership. I mean, if I get mugged, I can be responsible for the fact I was mugged. I didn't do the mugging, but I was mugged. So I can be a victim of that. Yeah. Or I can say, you know, it happened to me. It was my, my wallet. Or maybe I shouldn't have walked down that alley. Or, or maybe I shouldn't have walked down that alley or something. But the point is, whatever, whatever it is, once it happens, it's happened. And then my choice is, do I own it or do I deny it? Yeah. And, and, uh, if, if we've been using the AA uh, uh, example, you know, one of the things that's characteristic of alcoholics, and I would say anybody that's trapped in these self-referential bubbles, yeah. is, that, is that they always explain life based on other action, other people's actions, other, other things, circumstances. Yeah. That car ran into me, you know, it, you know and, and uh, when you live in that, in that relationship to life, and you know, you're struggling against circumstances trying to control. 
It's women upstream. It's women upstream, exactly. And when you do that, uh, generally speaking, it's it's a painful process. And depending upon how severe your, how how much you're addicted to your point of view. Uh, yeah, it is rich. I think the thing about uh, AA is people have gotten to a point where they surrender, like what you're saying, and not in, you know, submitting or giving up yeah. way. Just understanding that there are things that they can't control. What they can't control is their attitude towards it and the reflexiveness um, and the adaptability and resilience. It's all under our control. So that's true. Yeah, I, I like that. So um, yeah, you've been very generous with your time. And just you know, how's how's everything? How's Darlene and how's uh, everything going? Well, first of all, I've enjoyed the conversation enormously. And yeah, Darlene's my wife, and she is just fabulous. Yeah, uh, as we would expect. We're going to do a drive up to see my son in the Bay Area over Memorial Day. Oh, and, nice! Uh, I love so road trips. Yeah, our first road trip since the pandemic. In your Tesla? Since in my Tesla, and since the road trip started. You're the first guy I know that got a Tesla. 2014. Yeah. yeah. My girlfriend has the X. And her son, who got very successful in the sneakerhead trade, he's got these price bots. He's only 18 years old, just turned 18, has a Tesla as well. Well, I'm a I, fan. I, I mean, yeah. I guess Ojai is my favorite subject, and Tesla is probably my second favorite. Yeah. Did you see Elon <laughs> on Saturday Night Live? I didn't see it. I heard about it. Uh, yeah. I, I want to. I want to check it out on YouTube and see if I can. Yeah. He, they have great writers on there, and he was a good sport, so it all worked out. Yeah. All right, Jim. Uh, thank you very much. Well, and, thank uh, you. Yeah, we'll see you around the campus. I will look forward to it. Thanks. Just thinking out loud. It's the best part of the podcast to reach out to people and have these conversations about what's on their minds and get to know each other a little better. This podcast is a pandemic project started up this past April when things looked grim indeed. And now, as we emerge dazzled into the sun of the post-pandemic world, things look a little brighter, more interesting, and many of us are becoming excited for the future. That's why it was so fun to catch up with Jim. For one thing, it's hard to get him on a podcast because he's traveling so frequently. And for another, he's been spreading a message of determined optimism about our ability to rise to the challenge of the future. So that's it for this episode of Bohai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.